it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome back to my channel. Thank you so much for tuning in today. So happy to have you here. So today I have another, what I call family involved video for you. These are some of my favorite videos to work on because I really enjoy getting to know the family of some of the victims that I talk about. I think it's incredibly important to share my platform with family members so that they can tell the stories of their loved ones alongside me. Obviously they're not actually here beside me, but we can collaborate you know, by having them send in video clips and doing this interview style video. I have a whole playlist of family involved content. If you want to check it out, if you've never seen one of these, I think it's very important and impactful to watch this type of content, to hear from family members themselves so that we can remember as consumers of true crime, that these are real people. And I truly feel that no one can explain these cases better than the family of the victims themselves. They just have a completely different understanding of it all. And I've said this before, but I think it's important to remind people that this doesn't end for them when the video ends. They live this reality every single day, day in, day out for years on end. And as always, I just want to ask nicely. I know it's the internet you guys are going to do what you're going to do, but the majority of you normally listen when I say that I would really appreciate it if you leave kind, constructive, helpful comments. And if your comment is not kind, constructive, and helpful, then keep it to yourself. Move along because we really just don't need that here. We have to remember that family members read the comment section. And so we want to make sure it's all about support. Today, we're going to be talking about Georgia Leah Moses and her sister Angel is going to be joining us. And this case is truly heartbreaking, but Georgia's story is important and it needs to be heard as many times as possible. So we're going to jump right into her case in a moment. Before we get started, I wanted to let you guys know that I have some new charity merch finally coming out. I know it's been a long time since I've done a charity collection. I've done a lot of collaborations with small businesses over the past year, but I really wanted to create some charity merch this year for National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I love how it turned out. I'm wearing one of the pieces today. This design was inspired by children and I love kind of the vibe we were able to capture. This is a limited edition collection. So definitely jump on it. We do have limited quantities for this collection. So there's this crew neck that I'm wearing, but we also have it available in a t-shirt. I love how this turned out. I love the colors. It reminds me of childhood. It's colorful. It's happy. It's positive. It makes you feel good. I absolutely love how this turned out. I'm very proud of this collection and excited for you guys to check it out. So that's available at milehiremerch.com, which just relaunched. And 100% of the profit from this collection is going to National Center for missing and exploited children. Thanks in advance to everyone who picks one up. 
We really appreciate your support. And I know NECMEC does as well. And if you are not familiar with National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they are truly incredible. It's a private nonprofit organization that serves as the National Clearinghouse and Resource Center for Information about Missing and Exploited Children. And during the last 37 years, their national toll-free hotline, 1-800-THE-LOST, has received more than 5 million calls. They circulate billions of photos of missing children, and they've also assisted law enforcement in the recovery of more than 376 thousand missing children. It's an awesome cause. You can feel really good about donating there. Plus you get some awesome merch in exchange for your donation. So check that out. The link will be in the description box, but let's go ahead and get into Georgia's case. So Georgia Leah Moses was born on January 7th, 1985 in Buffalo, New York. Her mother Ida was around, but she had bipolar schizoaffective disorder and that made it hard for her to really care for for her daughter in the way that she needed to be. But Georgia did have two older brothers, Mario and Jermaine. And because her father wasn't around, Jermaine really had to take on a lot of responsibility from a young age. Not only was he literally in the hospital room when she was born, but he quickly learned how to care for a baby, how to change diapers. And he was a teenager at the time. So he had to make a lot of sacrifices in order to do that. But he loved his younger sister and he has many fond memories of being part of raising her. He would actually bring her with him to his football practices, his basketball practice, and then games. And people always loved to see her there. Everyone just thought she was so adorable. And he loved bringing her around with him. And Jermaine had to start working really young. And it started with just odd jobs, like he would shovel driveways and do small things like that in order to help provide for the family. And then when Georgia was five, her mother, Ida, gave birth to Georgia's younger sister, Angel, who will be joining us today. Georgia was an amazing person, like not even just an amazing big sister. She was an amazing person. She was so loving, so caring, so thoughtful, so selfless. Anything that anyone needed, she put herself out there to sacrifice for the next person. And I cannot be more proud to be the little sister of someone that was just so incredible. When I look back at the things that she did and the responsibilities that she had being so young and to take it on with such ease and not complain and not ask for help. It's, it's really incredible. A lot of my values from my youth come from her. And I actually found Georgia's case through her sister Angel on Twitter. And please, if you're on Twitter, go follow her. I think it's so incredible the way that she has been an advocate for her sister and has helped get her story out to more people. So only two years after Angel was born, Ida moved her and Georgia to Sonoma County, California. But Mario and Jermaine stayed behind in New York. So at just seven years old, Georgia took on the responsibility of caring for her baby sister, just as Jermaine had done for her. And Ida did what she could, but with her mental state being what it was, 
Georgia really had to step up. This often meant, you know, going grocery shopping for the family, collecting social security checks, even paying bills. And she did that from a super young age. Georgia was a very creative person. She loved to dance. And she also wanted to be a nurse one day because she wanted to help people. And she may have been young during all this, but people around her described her as being an old soul. She was responsible, caring, kind, and just an amazing little girl. And when Ida was unable to care for them, she would step in without ever complaining. It's remarkable to know that someone so young and that had so many burdens placed on her could rise above all of that and make such an incredible impact to the people around her, not just me, not just my mom, but her friends. The kind of person that everyone should strive to be, you know, to do the right thing, to care for other people. And despite the circumstances that, you know, life has given you, you make the most of it. That's who she was. She was, she was, she was a warrior in every sense of the word. And I couldn't be more proud of her. And given her situation, Ida knew that she wasn't providing the type of life that her children needed. Now, with this case, there has been some media coverage that the family has not been happy with, understandably. For example, a lot of media publications have been very critical about the circumstances in which the girls were being raised. But to Ida's credit, she really did try to find a better place for them to live. On more than one occasion, she had asked the state to help her place the girls in more safe and reliable homes. And every time, eventually the state would hand them back. Even when Ida was on the brink of being homeless, she would go to the state for help and was never able to get any. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So in early 1997, Ida started dating a guy named Eddie Pope. Now, Eddie was not a good guy. He was a convicted sex offender. However, Ida did not know this when she started dating him. And very quickly into their relationship, Eddie started living with Ida, Georgia, and Angel. And Georgia had a problem with Eddie and did not like him living with them from the beginning. She was especially frustrated because he had his own place a few miles north in Santa Rosa. Now, I do want to put out a warning here that this case gets very upsetting from this point forward. Around March or April-ish of 1997, things got a lot worse. So on this particular night, um, Georgia had just 
got done cooking. Um, one of her favorite things to cook was eggs and hot dogs. And um, she had just made some for herself and for me. And she was walking into her room and Eddie followed behind her. And I distinctively remember he closed the door and he locked it because I heard the little click and they weren't in there no longer than probably 30 seconds. It was like as soon as he went in, the commotion happened and he came out. But he went in, he locked the door. She was yelling. Georgia was saying, don't touch me, leave me alone. And I heard something hit against the wall. And then he immediately unlocked the door, opened the door, and he was standing in the doorway. And he said, if you're not going to abide by my rules, then you can get out. You can leave. And he walked off. And a few minutes later, Georgia came down the hallway and she had a bag. And I looked at her and I said, don't go. You don't have to go. And she said, I can't stay here. And that was her moving out. Of course, this was not Eddie's home to be kicking Georgia out of. And I know that this can be frustrating to hear about. I get it. But Angel really has explained and feels that her mother was either drugged or she you know, her mental condition had worsened to a point where she really didn't have the autonomy to protect her daughters during this. And I know that there will be judgment out there. And I just ask people to be respectful and try to understand the circumstances that Georgia was under. She felt like leaving her home was the best, safest option for her at that point. And when Georgia left, she went to stay at a few places, but the primary place that she stayed was no improvement to where she was before. So during this time, Georgia actually stayed with a few different people, but the first and the main people she stayed with was the family friend, which technically they were all considered family friends. But this one in particular is the one that my mom was informed that Georgia would be staying there. And the house was, it was a crack house. The adults were always in the garage um, doing drugs. The kids were always around the house running around. We were not allowed to go into the garage. And there was really no adult supervision. They had a lot of traffic in and out. It was always like a party going on. And one of the things in particular that really stood out to me over the years, the adults of the house were very narcissistic. I remember thinking from my early days of after Georgia passed that Georgia would not have been allowed to stay there unless she contributed uh, financially. So she basically would have had to pay rent. That would have been non-negotiable. But Georgia also stayed with other friends. And I can't say that they were all crack houses, but they all had a similar theme of practically no adult supervision. So at this point, Georgia is only 12 years old and really on her own in the world. And only one month into living at this new house, which was very unstable and very scary. She ended up dropping out of school. She was only in sixth grade at the time. And she literally went in and told her principal that she had to drop out because she had to take care of her family. And she also told the principal that she was living with her cousin. And this principal did nothing about it. The school system did nothing. They all completely failed Georgia. There was absolutely no effort put into 
looking more into Georgia's situation, trying to figure out how this 12 year old little girl is dropping out to take care of her whole family. And no one bothered to see what her living situation was actually like. And if they did do anything, literally anything, there's a chance that they could have intervened before things got much much worse. And even before she dropped out, Georgia began ditching classes and behaving in a way that should have made any adult in that school or anyone who knew her concerned, but no one bothered to look into her situation. And it wasn't just Georgia, of course. Her little sister Angel during all of this is living with a registered sex offender. And obviously it was incredibly difficult for Georgia to leave Angel she was so worried about her. Even though she was now living separately from her, her new home was basically just a place for her to sleep. And she was still spending as much time as she could with Angel and was still that big sister to her that she needed. But things definitely changed when she moved. And even before she moved, Angel was noticing a lot of behavior changes in her sister. She started smoking weed and she said that her overall demeanor was just not the same. I mean, Georgia was only 12 years old, but she was hanging out with 17 and 18 year olds. And Angel was just seven at the time, but she remembers this shift in her sister. And she didn't know this at the time or really wouldn't have been able to understand what this meant, but she believes now that her sister was a victim of human trafficking. Georgia began attending these parties where it was obvious that during these parties, they were selling girls and she was a victim of human trafficking. And that's, what's really disappointing in this case as well, is there has been a lot of reporting on it that puts the blame on her or calls her a child prostitute, which is just completely inaccurate. There's a drastic difference between sex work and sex trafficking. Sex work is when an individual willingly and consensually takes part in the sale of sex. And the key word here is consensual. And even if Georgia believed that she was agreeing to this or did agree to this, it is impossible for her to have given consent because she was only 12 years old. Children just cannot give consent. Georgia was a victim of sex trafficking. That's all there is to it. The people closest to Georgia at this time, including many of the people that she was living with, have not been investigated or even questioned by police. And now they even refuse to communicate with Angel. You can also find a detailed explanation of this on Angel's podcast called They Called Her Georgia Lee. On the episode, there's no such thing as a child prostitute. Also, in May of that summer, 1997, Ida began making plans to move her daughters back to Buffalo, New York, and they were expecting to leave by early July. And this would have allowed them to kind of restart and get back on their feet. But unfortunately, their move had to be postponed because Ida's purse was stolen. And obviously she had a ton of important things in there, including her social security card, her ID, and Angel knows, believes that her mom wouldn't have misplaced the purse or lost it or something like that. She said, no matter what mental state she was in, she always kept track of her purse. And she didn't know this at the time, but Looking back, she now believes that her purse was stolen specifically to keep them there and specifically to keep Georgia there. I really do think that my sister being sex trafficked is a really big part of that. Georgia stood up for what she believed in. You could not manipulate her to doing something if she felt like somebody's life was in danger or 
somebody was being taken advantage of. Like she'll sacrifice herself for the next person before she will for herself. That's the type of person she was. At the end of the day, somebody was making money off of her and she was she was being trafficked. She was 12 years old and there was adult people monetizing her. So my sister was excited to be leaving and for her to be excited to be leaving, you know, to be leaving the friends that she hung out with, to be leaving the state that we lived in for so long and to be going back to Buffalo. It's more than just I'm excited to be getting out of here. It was deeper than that. She was she was excited to be escaping her reality. Angel believes that Georgia was providing a service to someone there, that she was being trafficked, and that if she moved, it would expose the whole operation. So having Georgia leave the state was not an option. And around this time, Ida was evicted from her home. So she felt like the best option was to move her and Angel into Eddie's home, which like I said earlier was in Santa Rosa. And this made it much more difficult for Georgia to be able to visit and look after her sister because instead of a five minute walk, it was now a 20 minute drive and she's very young, but this didn't stop her from being her sister's protector. So that brings us to August 13th, 1997, which for Georgia was a normal day. Earlier in the day, she was hanging out with a friend who has not been named and eventually she had to leave to briefly spend time with Angel. I remember we were walking back from, I believe it was Jack in the Box, um, but I can't remember, but we were walking back, it was nighttime, and there was um, this adult male who was approaching us as we were walking back. And I remember like waving to him excitedly, like, hey, you know, um, and once we, you know, stopped at each other's path, Georgia told me to run along and I remember like looking back all like being nosy and Georgia handed him her pager. He did something with it because his back was towards me. So Georgia could see me and his back was towards me. And um, he did something with it, gave it back to her. We finished walk walking to the house and Georgia did my hair. Um, I was sitting in the wooden chair and she was braiding my hair up. And I remember there was a bag on the floor. It was a brown um, plastic bag and it had, you know, some clothes and some shoes in it. And I remember telling her that I wanted the shoes because it had like a little high heels, a boot. And um, I was like, oh, I want to wear these. And she, Georgia was like, you can't wear my shoes, you know. And so as she got, you know, was finishing up, I knew it would be time for her to leave. And I said, you don't have to go. Like, stay here, don't leave. And she said, I have to go. And she said, but I'll be back. That was always her thing, I'll be back. And so she took me in on the couch. She pulled the blanket over me. She kissed me. And I remember her walking out the door. And that was the last time I saw her. So then Georgia goes back to her friend's house, the one that she was hanging out with before she left to spend some time with Angel. And the two of them go back to doing whatever they were doing. And then... Georgia ends up getting a page. This friend said that Georgia then used her home phone to call the number who was paging her and arranged a place for them to meet. They ended up meeting at a nearby gas station. And this gas station was right by the intersection of Sebastopol Road and Dutton Avenue in Santa Rosa. And it's been reported that Georgia had asked this friend to go with her to a party. But 
the friend said that she wasn't able to, her mom wouldn't allow her to leave. But then Georgia responded to her and said that she had to go to this party because she had to take care of her family. I think that says a lot. So her friend watched as Georgia got into the car of an unidentified male and left with him. And she identified this person as being 6'2 to 6'4, so pretty tall, about 200 pounds and being aged around 24 to 30. She also said he had short black hair. He had a slight mustache and a medium complexion and that he got into a small white four-door car. And this would actually be, as far as we know, the last known sighting of Georgia alive. And after this, Angel didn't see her sister for nine days. And even though at the time Georgia wasn't visiting Angel as frequently as she used to because she lived further away, this was unusual for her to be gone that long. Angel just was not used to that. She knew that her sister would have checked in on her during that time. But Angel was only seven years old at the time. She just did not have the resources to alert anybody about her concerns when it came to her sister. She felt like there wasn't much she could do at the time. It wasn't until August 22nd that Child Protective Services showed up at her doorstep and she was able to report her sister missing. And CPS was making a visit that day to check in on Angel because it was known that she was living with a registered sex offender. And we don't know why they hadn't come for her sooner than that, knowing that information. It's devastating to think about and unfortunately not surprising. Angel remembers them trying to ask about her and her living situation and Eddie and everything regarding that. But her focus was about her sister. She knew something was wrong and she wanted them to do what they could to try to find Georgia. I remember standing by the police car and they were asking me questions about Eddie. Basically, they were like, has he ever been inappropriate with you? Has he ever touched you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? You know, has he ever done this? Has he ever done that? And, you know, I told them, I said, yeah, he's done this, he's done that. And I remember being super confused as to how these strangers knew what he was doing. And I remember telling them a specific incident that happened. And after that, it, I was just like, wait, but what about Georgia? Like, why are you guys asking me about these situations that you probably shouldn't even know about? Because... It happened when nobody was around, but why are you asking me about these incidents and not about Georgia? And so I kept telling them, like, what about Georgia? Like, Georgia hasn't been here. She normally would have checked on me by now. She hasn't been here. Where is she? Like, if you're the cops, you should know where she's at. You should be looking for her. And so that conversation and the shift of me um, responding to the questions about Eddie and asking about Georgia is what prompted uh, them to do the missing persons report and they went and talked to the adults and realized that not only did another child live here but she hasn't been seen for a certain amount of days so cps did take this report seriously but it was too late at that point that same day a badly decomposed body was found in a tree grove off of Highway 101. A Caltrans worker named Glenn Hayes was fixing a guardrail when he came across a naked body. There were not even clothes anywhere near the scene, and the police 
did have note that Angel had made this report about her sister. So they did try to see if there was a connection between the two of them. And at that point, her body was so decomposed that they could not make an identification just by looking at her. And at first there was false reporting that said that the body belonged to a woman somewhere between the ages of 18 and 40. But no, this was the body of 12 year old Georgia Leah Moses. And the coroner said that based on the level of decomposition, they believed that she was killed on the night of the 13th or in the early morning hours of the 14th. And her cause of death was eventually determined to be asphyxiation due to strangulation or smothering. Now, false reporting and just straight up lack of reporting has been extremely painful for Angel to deal with on top of losing her sister in this horrific way. For example, it started with the sheriff's office reporting that Georgia had been reported missing on the 25th of August by a anonymous tipster when it was actually her younger sister who reported her missing. And another example is it was reported several times that Georgia was sexually assaulted. However, that was not actually noted in the autopsy report and the police never corroborated that. Between August 31st and September 16th, there were actually only five articles that mentioned Georgia and the information was very conflicting. Georgia's body was officially identified on August 26th and for two decades, it was was falsely reported that she was identified via dental records. But not too long ago, Angel actually discovered that George's body was identified via fingerprints. So there was just a lot of false information being spread carelessly in this case from the beginning. And I know that these small details may seem unimportant to some people out there, but I mean, if this was your family member, you would want everything to be so thorough. You would want the facts out there and nothing but the truth. But the carelessness in this case from the beginning just shows the lack of seriousness in the investigation from the start. And it wasn't until almost a month later on September 16th that a description for the man that Georgia was last seen with was released to the public. And it wasn't until months later on January 30th, 1998, that a composite sketch was finally released to the public. So when Angel found out about her sister's death, she was actually living in a children's home. She had been placed there by CPS after that last visit when she told them that her sister was missing. Angel was actually outside playing in the yard when a staff member brought her inside to tell her the news. And Angel says she remembers being told in a very like cold way that her sister had been found. And she remembers looking around kind of confused, like, where is my sister? If you say that she's been found. And that's when she was told her body was found and that she was dead. After that, Angel was brought to a room so that she could process the news. And this person asked her if she needed anyone there to help comfort her. And she said that she wanted her friend that she was just playing with outside to come in and be with her. And they responded by saying that friend is outside. So she was left alone in this room to mourn this massive loss in her life and try to process it as a little girl. So a small memorial was held for Georgia with her family and friends on October 24th, 1997. And because the coroner was still performing an autopsy, her casket was empty. Angel and Ida were there and they had a reverend there as well who spoke and people shared their memories of Georgia. And a second funeral was held on June 17th, 1998, but 
It's not what you may think. When the coroner was done with the examination of George's body for a second time, George's family was not even contacted. The coroner actually gave her body to the owner of a cemetery who claims to have spoken to Ida on the phone about plans for a funeral service. And Ida said that they absolutely did not talk to her. And now they think it's possible that they actually spoke with their aunt, who I will talk more about in a moment. But because of that, a proper burial for Georgia was held without Ida or Angel in attendance to say their proper goodbyes, which was heart-wrenching for both of them. In her podcast, they called her Georgia Lee. Angel talks more about this. And she says that when she later spoke to her family members, she asked them if they knew about this second funeral and nobody knew anything about it. The only person who seemed to know that it happened was her aunt. So in the months following her sister's death, Angel was placed in a temporary foster home. And eventually she was given the option to either stay in that home or move to Atlanta and live with her aunt. Angel was young and her aunt was family. So she made the decision to move in with her as long as her mother could come with her and stay with them. And that was agreed upon and Angel and Ida both moved to Atlanta. They stayed there for several years and she maintained communication with her brothers. And she kind of felt like even though she had this horrible, tragic loss that she was still processing, life was kind of starting to move on. That is until Angel was about 10 or 11 years old and her mom decided to move back to New York. And for whatever reason, her aunt seemed to have a problem with her brothers, Mario and Jermaine, trying to get their mother back on her feet. And Angel remembers that it was during this time that she lost contact with her brothers and she wouldn't reconnect with them for two decades. Now her aunt, who ended up adopting her at age 12, made her call her mother, Miss Ida, and made Angel call her aunt, her mom, which was upsetting and obviously confusing. And like I said, from the beginning, Georgia's case did not get the care and urgency that it deserved. One case that is commonly referenced in relation to Georgia's is the murder of Polly Class, who was killed four years before in the same county, and she received national attention and a thoughtful, thorough investigation. And the attention and care that she received should be standard for how all missing and murdered children cases are handled, period. But instead, Angel has had to take on a lot of the investigative work herself. And for a long time, the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department wasn't giving her answers or updates in her sister's case. And at one point, they even asked her to stop calling them. My family dynamic was really broken. And so a lot of what should have been done, I feel like wasn't done. And a lot of the confidence to push past certain barriers wasn't there. I was like looking up George's case. I was looking up articles and that would be a constant thing. Like I would Google the news stories to see what was going on. And so, you know, I did my typical search and there wasn't anything pertinent that was like really updated. And so I called the detectives and this was 2010. And I asked if there was any updates on the case. I let them know who I was. And they told me there was no updates. And so, you know, I waited a few days and I called again. And I did that two or three times. And they basically told me, hey, stop calling. Me hounding them would not move the case along and it would not produce any new information. And so given that, 
I stopped hounding them. Um, I just kept looking for updates and every time it would be like a setback because the articles were just so derogatory for a child that was murdered and insensitive that you know it would just I was like okay I'll just wait just wait just wait so it was just constant rotation of just waiting getting the courage to look again being disappointed being traumatized and then doing that all over again and when she was trying to learn more about what was being done for Georgia, Angel actually came across a woman named Leah Raleigh, who created the Children's Village. And this was a home for neglected and abused children that was created by Leah in honor of Georgia. And this gave Angel hope and courage to keep seeking justice for her sister. That was, I would say, a little bit of my saving grace um, because she was doing something so positive as related to Georgia. And so instead of you know being so let down by me feeling like I couldn't contact the, the police department, I would just communicate with her. And like we've been over, a lot of the early media and even media today has caused more harm for the case than good. Several sources have inaccurately and unfairly characterized Georgia as a troubled kid and someone who got herself into bad situations, literally blaming this child for what happened to her. Even Eddie, a sex offender, was allowed to make statements about the kind of person that Georgia was. And no matter what happened to her in her 12 years of life, 12 years of life, there should be no fault ever put on Georgia. It is absurd that people actually have the nerve to do so. Georgia was a victim 100% no matter how you look at it. She was failed by multiple systems, the school system, child protective services. It is mind boggling that the school system failed to check on her when she said she was dropping out. I mean, she was in sixth grade dropping out to take care of her family. Obviously the state and CPS let her down by not stepping in when they were living with a sex offender and her mother was begging them for help. She was also let down by her supposed friends that she was living with at the time when no one reported her missing and the newsletter down. I mean, they're a resource with a power to influence the world and they failed to recognize the importance of her story from the beginning. And many of the stories that were put out blamed Georgia for her circumstances and for her death. And some of them even had the nerve to say that even if she was alive, she wouldn't have amounted to much. One reporter even speculated that she probably would have ended up in jail. And the Soma County Sheriff's Department let her down in so many ways. I mean, we know from a friend who was with Georgia the night that she disappeared that she received that pager. And then she used that friend's home phone to call whoever she likely met up with that night. And as far as we know, as far as Angel even knows, they never followed up with that at all. And her pager was never recovered. And a court order would have allowed investigators to look up her account and possibly determine the person who contacted her. But again, it seems as far as we know that these efforts were never taken. Angel also has talked about on her podcast an instance where she actually connected with this woman via a Facebook page for cold cases. And this woman said that around the time that Georgia was murdered, her and her husband found abandoned clothing outside of their place of work. And she explained that the clothes were mature, but very small and would have fit a 12 year old. And she also told Angel that the clothes appeared to have been damaged in a violent way. And this woman and her husband apparently turned the clothing into the local police, but not the sheriff's department. And 
the information was never transferred between the two. So Angel reached out not too long ago to ask about the clothing. And they told her that even if it was turned in, it would have been you know, lost or destroyed by this point. Another area where Georgia was let down is in relation to the reward for information. Initially, there was a $15,000 reward for information that led to the prosecution of Georgia's killer. And there are several articles stating this dollar amount and backing this claim. But when Angel began looking into her sister's case and what the police were doing, she asked if this reward money was still viable. And she was told it was, but only a few months later, she came across a press release from the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department that stated that the reward was only $2,500. And she was curious about where that money went. So she contacted the department and was told that they don't keep track of reward money. And one representative for the department even told her that there was never a $15,000 reward. Luckily, as of today, there is now a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer. Now, one more thing I really wanted to touch on in this video, and this will make the podcast that Angel runs make a little more sense, the title of it. As I mentioned earlier, her sister's podcast is called, they called her Georgia Lee. There has been a lot of misreporting on Georgia's name that her middle name is Lee instead of Leah. Anyone who has looked up Georgia and her story over the years might know her as Georgia Lee Moses. And Lee is not her middle name. Police didn't check with her mother or her school records or even her birth certificate to make sure that they even identified her correctly. And for more than two decades, the name Georgia Lee Moses has been used on posters, flyers, headlines, even on her gravestone. And even Angel, whose middle name is actually Lee, believed that she and her sister shared the same middle name. One of the most, I'd say traumatic, revelations was George's middle name and you know a lot of people want to say that oh it's just the middle name you know and they really minimize how impactful it is to have somebody's name correct or to have it wrong when I started coming public I made sure to put an emphasis on Georgia's middle name because I wanted her to be remembered for who she was exactly. Not just Georgia Moses, not just Georgia, but Georgia Lee Moses. When I found out that her name was wrong, it was a really, really hard pill to swallow. And I thought maybe there was some off chance my mom either said it wrong or wrote it wrong on the paperwork. I'm like, Lee, Leah, there is some, you know, closeness. Maybe, maybe it was a legitimate accident. When I received George's birth certificate and I saw that it was in fact Leah. And when I had a conversation with my mom and I saw how effortlessly she said, Georgia Leah Moses, it is very damaging to know that there's people in place in these positions of authority for a reason. To keep everything in order, nothing about George's case has order, nothing. And when I look at the fact that they did not ask my mom what her child's name was, that's a problem. When they did not fact check 
the information about this girl who was first missing to see who she was, that was a problem. To know her gravestone, her, her death certificate, the shirts that like everything about her is wrong. It makes you realize how flawed these systems are and where the change is needed. That's why she's remembered as Georgia Lee and Georgia Leah, but she's not Georgia Lee. She, that's not her. And it's a disservice to her to say that she is. She's Georgia Leah and she'll always be Georgia Leah. And to this day, police have not taken any responsibility for getting her name wrong all those years. So there have been a handful of suspects that people have theorized may be responsible for killing Georgia. A few of these are serial killers such as John Mark Carr and Wayne Adam Ford. But the reality is the circumstances around Georgia's murder point to her killer being someone that she knew, possibly even someone that she trusted. And I also wanted to point out that Angel does not believe that Eddie was involved in her murder. Who killed Georgia Leah? Honestly, truthfully, I don't know. I'm not gonna say I have no idea, but I don't know. I definitely think that there are multiple people responsible and I definitely think multiple people know. And the reason why I say that is because I've had conversations with a lot of different people and once I started asking questions about certain specifics as it related to Georgia, even details about her death, a lot of people started getting defensive. They started um, deflecting and ultimately put me on the block list. And when I think about my sister being murdered at the age of 12 and her case still being unsolved, and there being people close to her that supposedly cared about her, it frustrates me to know that everything is not being done to bring some sort of clarity. I can't not be open-minded to these people having some type of responsibility. There's too many suspicious behaviors that are taking place to say like, it's just because something inappropriate could have happened. Like it's, it's, I believe it's so much deeper than that. I believe the way that these people are acting is a guilty conscience of something being done that they don't want to be found out, which is my sister's murder. I wholeheartedly believe that sex trafficking plays a very big role in my sister's murder. And I just hope that the police acknowledge that because if it's not addressed, I feel like you're taking away the monster that exists. To say that she was just strangled or she was just found nude, you're taking away a big element to that. As far as all the other theories, um, the serial killers, I don't really think about it. It's always a possibility. At this point, anything is possible. But I definitely think it was somebody close to my sister. I think it was somebody that knew my family. And I think it was more than just 
one somebody. So like I've mentioned, Angel does have a podcast that I encourage you to check out called They Called Her Georgia Lee. And this podcast is co-hosted with another incredible woman named Maria Martin. Maria actually went to the same school as Georgia, and her father was part of the team who first recovered Georgia's body in 1997. Maria and Angel connected actually in 2020 over Facebook. And 2020 was a major year for Angel when it came to pushing for justice for her sister. So 2020 was really the year that catapulted my courage to fight for justice and do it publicly. I contacted the sheriff's department and I told them who I was and that I was here to get justice for my sister and I would not stop contacting them until it was done. And so June 2020 was really when everything came together and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I know that I have what it takes in me to fight for my sister and to fight to get all the answers that I'm looking for. So much information has come to light that I would have never even thought existed. You know, I created her website where I felt like I could really tell her story how I wanted to, to share the the special memories, to let the world know who Georgia really was. And so um, I created the website, was on other podcasts and really doing what was necessary to make Georgia's name known. I knew that there were so many things stated that weren't correct and then so many things that weren't stated that should have been stated. I felt it was standard for Georgia to have her story shared in its entirety as much to my ability as possible. And at that time, I wasn't too familiar with podcasts. Um, I think the only true crime podcast at that time that I had listened to was one that was done on my sister. And, you know, I had my views on how I would have done it. And so that was kind of at the forefront of what should be done, doing a podcast and just putting all the information out there and letting people really see from the family standpoint, because a lot of those stories did not include the family, um, but seeing from the family standpoint who Georgia truly was. And so that's what we did. We did a podcast. But there is some good news to end this video on. Although the investigation has been mishandled for so many years, Angel actually feels like it's heading in a decent direction now. There is a new detective on the case. There's currently two detectives working on the case. Um, One of those detectives, I guess, started working with the previous detective. There's also a new detective who's actually a cold case detective. He has been assigned to work specifically on cold cases, which I think is a really big deal because um, the prior detective was a violent crimes detective. And so if there was new cases that were happening, he had to delegate time to the current cases as well as the cold cases. I had a meeting with them a few weeks ago and my hope was reignited. The detective seemed to be someone who had the necessary analytical skills to process the information and put it in its proper perspective. With this new detective, I feel like he's that person. Um, And some of the things that were discussed were re-interviewing people, interviewing people um, that I guess 
weren't interviewed, possibly looking at third-party DNA testing, which I think is a really big deal. It kind of sounds like they're, start they're starting from ground zero, but, you know, certain foundations have already been laid. So it's a little bit of step step above ground zero. I'm really, really, really hopeful that progress will be made. And ultimately, uh, I stand by this. Um, I'm really, really big in my faith. My faith has got me to this point. My faith is why I'm publicly fighting for Georgia's case. Um, but I really believe that, you know, Georgia's case is going to be a miracle. You know, I, I believe that the impossible will be made possible and we're going to see something that is just beyond what should have happened, you know, despite everything negative that could possibly be the reason why Georgia's case would never get solved. I truly believe God is going to bring something together that's going to be, you know, no doubt that it was a miracle. I pray that, you know, whoever did it, whoever has responsibility, you know, their conscience gets the best of them. Going on 25 years, it really starts to eat at them where they have to, they have to tell what happened. They have to tell what they did. With that, I do want to say this, whoever, however many people are responsible, whoever did murder my sister, they are forgiven. I have to forgive them. And I know a lot of people may not understand that or care to understand that, but you know, I have to acknowledge what they did and they have to be responsible for what they did. But me as an individual, I can't hold on to not forgiving them. Unfortunately, forgiving doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the fact that Georgia will never be here again. But if telling Georgia's story and shining light on all of the mishandlings, all of the under investigation, investigating all of the cracks that Georgia fell through. All of that brings me to a place where something could be done to help the next person. Then it doesn't make up for Georgia being lost, but it does help make her death not be in vain. On January 7th, 2021, a memorial walk was actually held for Georgia in her honor, and this would have been her 36th birthday. But until Georgia's murderer is put behind bars, it's important that we do not forget her story. It's important that we hold people accountable for their actions and misactions in this case as well, and recognize that Georgia is not the only victim of a failed system. She is just one of many whose cases are just swept under the rug. We as a community have so much more responsibility than we want to admit to. And so many people knew her life wasn't what it should have been. Our lives wasn't what it should have been. But so many people just sat by, did nothing, said nothing. I want Georgia's life and Georgia's story to be catalyst for change. Georgia only fell through the cracks because people allowed her to. And it's up to us, the community, to tell her story and to pull her 
out of the cracks. I want to thank Angel for participating in today's video. It means a lot. I know it's not easy for her to do. I also want to thank all of you for listening to Georgia's story today. Please make sure to check out Angel's podcast, follow her on social media, Facebook, Twitter. I'll have all of that linked below so you can stay connected and up to date on Georgia's case. I know this one was incredibly difficult, incredibly upsetting, but it's very important that Georgia's story is told no matter how heart-wrenching it is to hear. I pray that with Georgia's story and her case, that people not only remember Georgia Leah Moses, but they remember her for being this angel. Like she really, I believe that God created her to be my guardian angel on earth. But that she was an amazing person, an amazing child. And she was met by unfortunate circumstances. I pray that with Georgia's story, that people can see how flawed some of these systems are and do something to help fix them. And at the very least, become aware of your surroundings. If you see something going on, say something. If you see something that looks suspicious, speak up. If you see a child in a situation that doesn't look right, say something. That is going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you for joining me for another episode. And make sure you follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help me out. If you want to watch the video version of this show, you can find it on my YouTube channel, which will be linked, or you can just search Kendall Ray. I will be back with another episode soon, but until then, stay safe out there. Bye.